The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Throughout unending ages, looking forward to that. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the triumphant and exalted king. And as great as some songs might be, Lord, there is no praise that could ever do you justice, Lord. You're just that glorious, just that wonderful. And yet, Lord, thank you that we can worship you in a meaningful way. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see more and more of the glories and the wonders that we just sang about. Help us to see you for who you are, Lord, and be captivated by you and, and experience just personal renewal and revival this morning, God. Get a hold of our hearts that we might see you, that we might know you, that we would have a fresh sense that these things, this isn't just some story. Lord, this is real. This is true. Give us a sense of that, Lord, that we might be in awe of you, overcome by gratitude. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I just alluded to, Beneath our celebration of Easter is a very important assumption. We're assuming that Easter actually happened. That Jesus really did rise from the dead. And of course, that's part of a larger question of whether the Christian gospel as a whole is true. And if it's true, then how can we know with certainty that it's true? So as you can see, I've titled this message, How Can We Be Certain That the Gospel Is True? And the reason I'd like to share this particular message with you is that this message and these ideas that I'm going to be presenting this morning have been a refuge for me in my own life as a Christian. Uh, you see, there was a time, even just a few years ago, when this question of how we can be certain that the gospel is true was very perplexing to me. I would literally lie in bed at night trying to go to sleep, but unable to get this question out of my mind. Because the reality is that there are so many religions in this world. So many different worldviews that each claim to accurately describe reality. So how can I be sure that I've chosen the correct one? That's what I would think about for years, off and on, as I lay in bed at night. 
And like I said, it was very perplexing to me and caused me a lot of anxiety because, well, just to state it bluntly, I'm going to die one day. No matter what I might try to do to lengthen my life, I'm going to die. And it's hard to escape the sense that when I die, my eternal future will be determined by whether or not I embrace the right religion now. The stakes couldn't be higher. <laughs> and just to be real with you guys, the thought of suffering for all eternity is a terrifying thought, as I believe it should be for any sane person. And so there's nothing more important in this world than making sure that we're ready for eternity and nothing more comforting than having the certainty that we're ready. But for so long, I struggled to have that certainty or to even understand how that certainty could even be possible for anyone who's intellectually honest. I really didn't have a good answer to this question of how we can be certain that the gospel is true. And now, of course, there are many historical and philosophical and scientific arguments for the truth of Christianity. And those can certainly be helpful at times, but none of them gave me the certainty that I was looking for. At best, they made Christianity probable, but not certain. And because of that, I was anxious. Um, I usually managed to stay busy enough during the day that I didn't have to think about it very much. But at night, I just couldn't stop my mind from wandering <laughs> and wondering and being anxious. But then I discovered a pastor and theologian from the 1700s that I'd mentioned before uh, named Jonathan Edwards. I'd actually known about Edwards for a while and had even read some of his books, but this was the first time I discovered his writings on this particular subject. And in writing on this subject, Edwards focuses on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses four through six, which is the passage that I'd like to explore with you this morning. And let me just say that I can't tell you how helpful and just comforting this passage has been for me. I, I mean, it's been incredible. This passage and the line of thinking derived from it have been an immeasurable comfort for me. And I hope they can be the same for you as well. Maybe you're here and are already a Christian but have had struggles, or at least questions, similar to mine. Or maybe you don't even consider yourself to be a Christian at this point, because you're just not sure whether Christian teachings are true. Yet regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, I hope that this passage is as helpful for you as it was for me. So let's look at it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel 
of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So according to verse four here, the reason that many people don't believe is because Satan has blinded their minds. That's who Paul is talking about here when he says the God of this world. Satan is the little g God of this world in the sense that the true big G God has given him uh, temporarily some pretty considerable influence over this present age. And we read that Satan's used this influence to blind the minds of unbelievers and keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So that, matter, that means that no matter how frequently or skillfully or powerfully the gospel is shared with them, they'll never be able to believe it in their current condition because they're not spiritually able to believe it. Satan has blinded their minds. And when someone's physically blind, it doesn't matter how bright of a light you shine in their eyes. They won't see it. It's impossible for a blind person to respond to the stimulus of light. Similarly, it's impossible for someone whose mind has been blinded to respond to the light of the gospel while they're in that condition. And notice here how this gospel is summed up. It's referred to as the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what the gospel is in its essence. It's a message of the glory of Christ. Perhaps you remember from a few weeks ago, if you were here, that the word glory in its most literal usage primarily means weight. To say that something's glorious means literally that it's weighty. It's something significant and substantial. And so in this context, the glory of Christ refers to the splendor of Christ and the magnificence of Christ. Like Jesus is glorious in every way. I mean, just consider with me for a moment how Jesus left his perfect paradise in heaven in order to come to this broken world on a mission to save us. And not only did he come to this world, but he even came as a real human being, laying aside all of his heavenly privileges and prerogatives so that he could become one of us. Yet unlike us, Jesus went on to live a perfectly righteous life. Everything that he did, every word he ever said, even every thought that went through his mind exhibited sinless perfection. Then, in humble submission to his Father's will and out of his incomprehensible love for us, Jesus voluntarily endured the agony and the shame of the cross 
in order to pay for our sins. Understand, that's what happened on the cross. God the Father's righteous indignation and judgment was poured out on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. And again, the reason Jesus did that was because of his love for us. Even though we had rebelled against him. Thankfully, though, that's not the end of the story because Jesus didn't stay in the grave, did he? No, he triumphed over sin and death as we're celebrating today on Easter through his resurrection from the dead. And with the result, as Hebrews 7.25 says, that he's now able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's how we can receive the rescue he offers. We have to draw near to God by turning away from our sins and repentance and putting our trust in Jesus alone as our all-sufficient Savior. So this is the message of the gospel, also known back in our main passage as the gospel of the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is the sum and substance of the gospel. Yet, how can anyone ever embrace this message? Because we've already read about how Satan has blinded people's minds, right? So how can anyone ever believe these wonderful truths? Well, we see how in verse six. Look what it says. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So just as God created physical light by saying back in Genesis 1, let light shine out of darkness, he also shines his light into our hearts. He provides supernatural illumination. He takes our eyes that used to be blind and opens them so that we can now see. And the thing that we see, according to this verse, is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there we go with that word glory again, right? You see how that's repeated? Believing the gospel and becoming a Christian are equated with being given knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So back to the main question we're trying to answer this morning. How can we be certain that the gospel is true? What do you think in light of this passage? How can we be certain that the gospel is true? Well, according to Paul here in 2 Corinthians, it takes a supernatural work of God. God reveals it to us. He shows us that the gospel's true by opening our eyes to see, as it says, his glory. And that's the central idea I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning explaining and exploring. We can be certain that the gospel is true as God opens our eyes to see its glory.
And the key word there is glory, right? That's the word this entire message hinges on. You may recall that it's used twice in our main passage. And the thing I'd like to emphasize about the glory of Jesus or the glory of the gospel is that it's a glory unlike any other. And that can only have its origin in God. Uh, you might think of it as God's divine fingerprints. You know, fingerprints, of course, are useful because they're so unique. Right? No, people's, no two people's fingerprints are the same. So if someone's fingerprints are on something, that's a pretty reliable indication that they touched that object. A fingerprint is an identifier that points back to the person who bears that print. And that's the way it is with the gospel. The gospel bears God's fingerprints. The glory of the gospel is such that anyone who's been given eyes to see can see quite plainly that this is a glory that can only come from God. Its divine origin is self-evident. And that becomes increasingly apparent the more you think about it. The more you examine the gospel, again with unblinded eyes, the more you can see that this just couldn't come from any origin other than God. For example, think about the way Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is perfectly and unalterably divine and perfectly and unalterably human. And that's a wonderful thing because the fact that he's divine means that he's able to be a mighty savior who, as the, the scripture says, doesn't lose a single one of those entrusted to him while the fact that he's human means that we're able to relate to him and him to us. I mean, what an incredible thing. Nobody on this earth could ever invent such a perfect savior. We see one failed attempt in the so-called Gospel of Peter, a false document that was written over 100 years after Jesus' walk on this earth. Listen to how the author, who wasn't Peter, by the way, describes the scene of two angels supposedly carrying Jesus out of the tomb. The soldiers guarding the tomb saw three men come out of the tomb two of them sustaining the other one, and a cross following after them. The heads of the two they saw had heads that reached up to heaven, but the head of Jesus that was led by them went beyond heaven. Now, if that sounds a little wacky to you, that's because it is. You see, the group that wrote this document thought that uh, anything that was physical was inherently inferior. And so they tried to paint this picture of Jesus as some otherworldly ethereal being rather than the flesh and blood human being that we see in the New Testament. This particular account in the Gospel of Peter describes Jesus as some mutant tall dude with a head that, that towered above the heavens. And we see not only 
how goofy that description is, but also how much is lacking in that description. Because if Jesus was really like that, if he really had a head that towered above the clouds, then how in the world are we supposed to relate to him? How, how in the world could he understand our suffering or our brokenness? None of that would be possible. And that's simply one small example among many of the kinds of deficiencies that are painfully evident whenever people try to insert their own ideas into the gospel. Whenever we invent something, it's always deficient. It always bears our fingerprints instead of God's. The glory of the true gospel and of the true Jesus just can't be replicated. It's self-evidently divine. Also, to give you another example, think about the holiness of God. A 20th century theologian named A.W. Pink once made this observation. He wrote that an ineffably holy God who has the utmost aberrance of sin was never invented by any of Adam's descendants. Again, an ineffably or unspeakably holy God who has the utmost aberrance or hatred of sin was never invented by any of Adam's descendants. You see, if we were inventing a God, it would be a God who, whose holiness is far below that of the God of the Bible. Our God would be one who's more tolerant of our sin. And I actually believe we see this illustrated in Islam. Islam teaches that Allah lets people into eternal paradise whose sins haven't been dealt with. And basically, whenever a Muslim dies, uh, Allah uh, supposedly takes a look at all of their good works, and then he takes a look at all of their bad works, and then he kind of weighs them and makes a decision about whether or not they get to go to paradise or not. And he lets some of them into paradise, even though they have at least some bad works, as we all do. And so Allah essentially sweeps their sins under the rug. Now, of course, a Muslim wouldn't describe it that way, but that's nevertheless essentially what's going on here. So Allah isn't holy the way the God of the Bible is holy. Allah at least sometimes tolerates sin rather than judging it like the God of the Bible does. And of course, God does that, pouring out that judgment on his son, Jesus. And that's because Allah is an invention of the human mind. That's why his holiness doesn't measure up. But let's not stop there, because here's what's really fascinating. Not only is the God of the Bible more holy than Allah, he's also more loving. See, Allah never demonstrates sacrificial love for anyone. I mean, sure, he might demonstrate general kindness and benevolence, but never self-sacrificing love. And certainly not love for his enemies. 
Yet listen to what Jesus has done as recorded in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, think about that. Even while we were sinners, even while we were in a state of active and hateful rebellion against God, Christ died for us. I mean, this is a love that we just can't invent. What mind could ever come up with that? I mean, we don't even have the capacity to comprehend this love, much less invent it. So do you see how the, the Christian gospel shines with a glory that's just not there in Muslim teaching? And it shines with this glory, not just in one way, but in every way. Revealing a God who's infinitely more glorious, both in his holiness and in his love. Both ends of the spectrum. This is what I mean when I say that the gospel has God's fingerprints all over it. It's so glorious that it just has to be. It has to be from God. It shines with a glory that's self-evidently supernatural to those who've been given eyes to see that glory. As I mentioned before, one person who's written quite insightfully on this subject is Jonathan Edwards. And I love the way Edwards describes the way in which we can be certain that the gospel is true as we behold its glory. Edwards writes that, quote, the divine glory and beauty of divine things is in itself real evidence of their divinity and the most direct and strong evidence. Thus, a soul may have a kind of intuitive knowledge of the divinity of the things exhibited in the gospel. Not that he judges the doctrines of the gospel to be from God without any argument or deduction at all, but it is without any long chain of arguments. The argument is but one, and the evidence direct. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel, but by one step, and that is its divine glory. Now, some might object to this argument for the truth of the gospel, by saying that we're engaging in circular reasoning here, that this is a circular argument. So how can we say that the truth of anything is self-evident or that any message is self-authenticating? Can anything really prove its own authenticity? And that's a fair question. To which a theologian named Wayne Grudem gives a fair answer. Uh, Grudem admits that this argument for the truth of the gospel is, in some sense, a circular argument. 
We are arguing for the truth of something by appealing to that thing itself. However, Grudem uh, argues that this doesn't necessarily make this approach invalid because in his own words, he explains, all arguments for an absolute authority must ultimately appeal to that authority for proof. Otherwise, the authority wouldn't be an absolute or highest authority. Uh, he then states that this problem isn't unique to the Christian. Everyone, either implicitly or explicitly, uses some kind of circular argument when defending his or her ultimate authority for belief. For example, uh, many people appeal to unaided reason as their ultimate authority simply because it seems reasonable for them to do so. So if you were to ask them why they're appealing to reason as their ultimate authority, they're not really able to give you uh, much of an answer that doesn't itself employ reason, uh, the very thing that they're seeking to defend. Or here's another example, uh, maybe one that's a little easier to, to understand, a little more concrete. How do you know that this world is real? Like, how do you know that we're not all just living in some matrix-type scenario, if you've ever seen that movie, where everything that we see and experience is just a computer simulation? Essentially, how do you know that our sensory experience can be trusted? Well, I imagine that most people would respond to that by saying that, well, they just know. <laughs> Everything that, that we experience just seems to be too real for it not to be real. Our favorite dessert tastes too sweet for it not to be real, too good. A picturesque sunset looks too beautiful for it not to be real. And even getting punched in the face <laughs> seems too painful for it not to be real. Pretty sure it's real. And so at the end of the day, most people regard their sensory experience as self-authenticating. And that's Grudem's point. In order to believe anything, you have to employ a form of circular reasoning at some level. You have to regard something as self-authenticating, whether it's your own reasoning abilities or your sensory experience, or in the case of Christianity, the gospel. In order for anything to be regarded as an ultimate authority, it has to be regarded as self-authenticating. And my claim this morning in light of 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, is that when God opens your eyes to behold the, the beauty and the glory of the gospel, it's perfectly acceptable and perhaps even unavoidable to regard that glory as self-authenticating. You can be certain that the gospel is true as you see its glory. So if you're already a Christian this morning, I pray that this message and the line, this line of reasoning derived from 2 Corinthians 4 is a tremendous comfort 
and encouragement to you. And if you ever find yourself struggling with questions or perhaps even doubts about the truth of the gospel, it's entirely acceptable to pray that God would give you fresh eyes, that, that he would open your eyes afresh and anew to behold the glory of these things. Even in the midst of this cosmopolitan world that we live in, with countless different worldviews and truth claims, we really can have utter and absolute confidence that the gospel is true as we behold its glory. So don't be afraid to ask for the eyes to see that glory. And of course, this also applies if you're not yet a Christian and haven't yet put your trust in Jesus to rescue you from your sins. Just ask God to reveal himself to you through his word and through the gospel. And maybe he has, even this morning. Maybe for the first time this morning, you find yourself believing that these things are true. That Jesus really did die on the cross to pay for your sins and rise from the dead gloriously and triumphantly so that he's now able to offer you full forgiveness and eternal life as you put your trust in him. What better time than this morning to do that and, and to embrace Jesus as your all-sufficient Savior? And furthermore, going back to those who are already Christians, let me encourage you to share the gospel with others with confidence in God to work in people's hearts and to reveal the truth of the gospel to them. It can certainly be helpful to read up on what's often called Christian apologetics, which uh, draws from science and history and philosophy and things like that to argue for the truth of Christianity. But don't underestimate the power of the gospel itself to convince people of its own truth. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Hebrews 4.12 states that the word of God is living and active. So treat it that way. <laughs> Share the gospel with the confidence that the Holy Spirit will use that message to do his work in people's hearts and unblinding their eyes. I love the, the illustration that uh, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon uses. He compares the gospel to a lion. And he observes how silly it would be for a group of men to stand outside of a lion's cage and seek to defend that lion against someone who might attack it. Lions, as you know, aren't weak creatures. They're more than able to defend themselves. And so Spurgeon recommends that instead of trying to defend the lion, the people who are around the cage should simply stand back, open the door of the cage, and let the lion out. That would be the best way of defending him. Just let him out so he can defend himself. And likewise, the best way of defending the gospel is simply to let it out of its cage, so to speak, by sharing it 
with people. We defend the gospel ultimately by sharing the gospel. And of course, we, as we do this, <laughs> we dare not neglect faithful and fervent prayer. Remember that according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan has blinded people's minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory or of the glory of Christ. And because of that, and because of our own sinfulness and our own willful blindness, even prior to Satan's influence, nobody can see the light of the gospel apart from a supernatural work of God. That's why we pray. And when we pray, we can have every expectation that God is going to move in a big way in people's hearts. And we can expect him to do that even through our imperfect efforts. Praise God for that.